This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I am Jake Tapper, and we begin with the breaking news. The jury in the trial of Derek Chauvin has reached a verdict. After about 10 hours of deliberation, the jurors have come to a unanimous conclusion on the three charges against the former Minneapolis police officer for the death of George Floyd. The verdict will be announced this hour, according to the court. It is a moment that the nation and many throughout the world have been waiting for. Chauvin is facing second-degree unintentional murder, third-degree murder, and second-degree manslaughter charges. The most serious charge is second-degree unintentional murder, and that carries a maximum sentence of 40 years in prison. Let's go straight to CNN. Sarah Seidner, live outside the courthouse in Minnesota. Sarah, you just spoke with George Floyd's brother. I can't imagine what they're feeling right now, but but give us an idea. They're they're nervous, I imagine. You know, it's really interesting, Jake, because the Floyd family, particularly Philonis, uh, Philonis and his brother um, Terrence, they're really calm dudes. Like, they really have a sense of calm. And I asked them how that is possible in a time like this when everyone else, including myself, is on tinderhooks. And they said, look, we just have faith and we believe that justice will be served. I called Philonis Floyd um, just as I heard that the, the verdict had been reached. He had not heard that the verdict had been reached. He says, you know, okay, what is it? And I said, I, I do not know what the verdict is. Um, and I felt a bit bad being the one to tell him. But, you know, his response was, it's going to be all right. He says, look, I realize that this is a historic case in America. But for us, it is deeply personal, a deeply personal case. They lost, he lost a brother. Uh, Terrence lost a brother. Rodney lost a brother. Um, people lost a cousin and an uncle uh, and a friend. Um, and so they're extremely calm, uh, while everyone else around here is extremely nervous. Um, you have this jury of 12 people. Uh, half of the jury uh, are people of color. There are four black men. There are two uh, mixed-race uh, people on this jury, and there are uh, six of the jurors. The other half of the jurors are Caucasian. Um, they worked for a good uh, nine hours um, to deliberate. They went uh, to deliberate at 4 o'clock yesterday, and they deliberated for four hours yesterday, and then came back and deliberated for about five hours before we heard mm -hmm. uh, that they had reached a verdict. Um, what's really, I think, important in this case is that uh, a hung jury would have been um, very difficult and, and devastating to a lot of people. Um, and I think, you know, having a decision is very important um, for, for everyone that has been involved with this. Because as you know, with a hung jury, it would mean that you would have to, if the prosecution decided, they would have to do this all over again with all 45 potential witnesses and the Floyd families uh, and, and, you know, and potentially a member of the Chauvin family going back over all of these things and having right. a brand new jury and going through all this all over again. That's not going to happen. Well, but certainly you're not going to have we a hung jury. We don't know what is going yeah, to happen. Right. And you certainly you're not going to have a hung jury after 10 hours. Uh, and the fact that this yeah. decision has been reached so quickly, we do not know what the verdict is and we cannot assert what the verdict is in any way. We will hear it from the jury themselves in the courtroom. But generally speaking, Sarah, and you and I have gone through this a number of times, this would suggest an easy decision, whether it's an easy decision of not guilty or an easy decision yes. of guilty. You hit the nail on the head, Jake. Um, they did not ask a single question because all of the media would have known. We were told that if they were to ask a question, they would have asked the question by Zoom, via Zoom to the court. Uh, and then the court, if they thought it was appropriate, would have given them a response. Not a single question. We have not learned of a single question that any of the jurors had asked in this case. And so this is going to be a decisive decision, if you will, um, from this juror, from these jurors of 12 people. Um, you know that we started with 14 because we had two alternate jurors. They were uh, dismissed uh, when this jury went to deliberate. Uh, yesterday at 4 p.m. local time. And so we have a decision. We do not know. They can do 
one charge and they can decide on, on one or they can decide all three. He can be acquitted of all three or he can be, uh, he can be uh, found guilty of all three uh, or just one or two. So it, 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 the system here is different than, than some other places in the country. Um, and so this is one of those moments where we all just have to sit back and we have to wait for the four person when asked what their decision is in court. We have to wait for that person to tell us what these 12 people uh, have decided in the case involving a former Minneapolis police officer, Derek Chauvin, in the killing of George Floyd. And let us just remind Jake. our viewers uh, tuning in throughout the world of the 12 people on the jury, we know that six of them are white, four of them are black or African-American, and two of them are bi or multiracial. And that's according to the court. So whatever the conclusion is, it is one that all 12 of these individuals of a diverse jury reached very quickly. Absolutely. It is a diverse jury. It's even more diverse than if you look uh, at the state and at the county, but uh, more reflective of, of Minneapolis itself. But you know the jury pool is a lot larger than just uh, the city. Um, so this is a diverse jury. It is uh, both men and women. Uh, you have black folks, you have white folks, you have uh, multiracial folks on this jury. Um, they have been paying attention to, and we should make very clear that this jury was one that was writing notes the whole time, that was looking directly at the witnesses every single time and listening to the closing arguments and opening arguments. So yeah. they've been attentive, and now they have a decision. Okay. All right. Thank you, Sarah. Let's go now to CNN's Omar Jimenez. He's at George Floyd Square in Minneapolis. That's what they call this area of the city uh, where George Floyd uh, died. Uh, Omar, um, it must be an incredibly somber scene there. It is, Jake. I mean, we've been talking to people here throughout the day about what this moment means. Of course, we were talking to them before we even knew a verdict was in. And for many of them, the common thread is that what happened to George Floyd is not an end-all, be-all, no matter what the verdict is, that this needs to be the beginning of a long-term practice of treating black people with respect. And this is really what it's all about. When you think about the verdict, and all, of course, we get caught up in all the legal proceedings and the trial and the legalese and what one witness said versus another, what it comes down to was this spot where George Floyd laid under the knee of Derek Chauvin for nine minutes and 29 seconds, multiple minutes of which he was unconscious for back in May of 2020. It has become a makeshift memorial. It started at this Cup Foods here on the left, of course, with that call over a potential fraudulent $20 bill where we know the cashier who initially wrestled with reporting it still feels guilt over that decision, thinking to himself, as we found out in court, that what if I hadn't called? What if I had just paid it out of my own pocket? Could I have stopped all of this? And then you're reminded of the stakes in this verdict. When you come over to the central part of George Floyd Square, you of course see the fist raised in the air, the statue that was erected here, but also you see the faces of George Floyd. As you come around the circle, you see the face of Tamir Rice. As you keep coming, you see the face of Breonna Taylor next to the sign of Black Lives Matter. And you see the face of Dante Wright, which, of course, just happened over the course of this past week. So those are the stakes that people feel are at play, that it's not just about George Floyd. It's about so many people that have died, in many cases, at the hands of police, Jake. And I'm, I'm reminded of what uh, I think what Will Smith said, that racism is not getting worse. It's, it's just getting filmed. Uh, one can only imagine uh, how this all would have played out had there not been a preponderance of smartphones in the vicinity. Uh, Omar Jimenez, uh, we'll come back to you uh, in a bit. Uh, we're told that Derek Chauvin, uh, the defendant, is now in the courthouse. We don't have live pictures of that yet for you, but we'll bring them to you as we do, as the jury is preparing uh, to announce their decision, their verdict. Let's bring in CNN anchor Don Lemon. Uh, Don, uh, only about 10 hours of deliberations suggesting that for this jury of six white people, four African-Americans, two multiracial people, that it was a relatively easy decision as these things go. What's your reaction? Well, uh, we don't know. I mean, you, one would tend to think with about 10, 10 and a half hours, it was four hours yesterday, six and a half hours today, that it was a decision that they reached unanimously and that it was a relatively easy decision. But Jake, as you know, listen, I'm old enough to have been in the newsroom for 
um, Rodney King and for O.J. Simpson and for George Zimmerman. And many times these things don't turn out the way you think they do just because, it, you know, O.J. Simpson was four hours that they deliberated, even though the trial went on for 11 months. So how am I feeling about this? Quite frankly, I think the way most Americans are feeling about it, uh, angst, there's anxiety here. I'm anxious about it. Um, there's a sense of dread as well, because I don't know what's going to happen after the verdict is rendered and after it is read. Uh, and, you know, as I was getting ready to come here, and even earlier uh, today, people were texting me and calling me saying, I'm really nervous about this. I'm really nervous about this, especially people of color, Jake, because of what this means for the entire country, but also what it means for the value of black life in this country and state violence against people of color. America is on trial here. And um, I think the, 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 this verdict will indicate just how much of a value that the system, right, that America places on black people. Jake, I, you know, I, I sat here, we've been sitting here for almost a year. It was uh, the 25th of May, Memorial Day uh, last year, when we all saw that horrific uh, videotape play out of George Floyd. If not that day, then soon after. And we were all sitting in our homes uh, with nowhere to go because we couldn't, because we were in the middle of a deadly pandemic and a quarantine. And we were so open and so vulnerable, and we saw that. And I think to a person, most people in this country were horrified by that. And many didn't know or understand how many people of color are treated by law enforcement in this country. And George Floyd laying there on that pavement with the life being snuffed out of him was evidence mm -hmm. in real time of that treatment. And so here we are almost a year later and there is a verdict and it is in many ways a year has gone quickly and it seems like it's gone at a snail's pace. But here we are and America's on trial and we're going to find out what the verdict is in just moments. We shall see what the value of a black life is. The, uh, this is happening very quickly. Um, you note that O.J. Simpson was acquitted in four hours. George Zimmerman was also acquitted in, in 16 hours, also relatively quickly. We should note the big differences, obviously, in those cases, um, beyond the racial dynamics being very different in all of them. The murders of, uh, of, of Trayvon Martin, the murders of, of all the other individuals that, that we have been talking about in the last year, um, generally speaking, with the only exception being that I can think of Eric Garner, um, mm -hmm. none of them were on tape. This was filmed, all nine and a half minutes of former Officer Chauvin's knee on George Floyd's neck. This was filmed. We all saw it. Yeah. We all saw it. But if you've been watching, I've been glued to the coverage. And if you've been watching it, the defense has been trying to make us not believe what we have seen with our own eyes and what we heard at least 27 times of George Floyd saying, I can't breathe, if not more. So they're trying to convince us that, you know, that reality is not reality. And Jake, as you know, sadly, after the last five years, we live in a post-truth, post-reality world where people, depending on your beliefs or who you believe in or who you trust, you're going, that's what you're going to believe, regardless of what the evidence says. So there is a concern there, especially among, especially among people of color, especially among people who look like me. I must be honest, because when everyone says, well, of course, there's no way that Derek Chauvin is going to be acquitted. There's no way that they're not going to, um, he's not going to be guilty of the, the most major charge. And then people of color go, oh, yeah, there's a way, because we've seen it before. Well, and we thought that the evidence was conclusive. But still, I, I know what you're saying, but, but, but still, even in the videotape, people are, people, if you look at, if, Jake, if you look at what the polling shows about what people thought about George Floyd about, uh, and Derek Chauvin right after this happened, when it happened, many more people believe that, that George Floyd was killed by Derek Chauvin. And if you look at the polling now, they're not so sure about yeah, it. Yeah, but the so, polling doesn't matter. What matters is what the opinions of the 12 individuals on the jury think. And they and are made up of people would, from the American public just as people right. who are polled are made up of people from the American public. I know, and many but, of the but, people but, who have been following this very closely. I, I know, but my point is the polling doesn't matter. All that matters is these 12 people. Right. And and the, the point I'm trying to make is and I understand your, your understand your skepticism and I, I feel it and I hear it and it's not new to me, this concept. But uh, if you talked about the defense and what they did and the defense did what defense 
attorneys do. They try to change the subject or... It's what they're supposed to do. Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. Yeah. Throw as much on the wall and see what sticks. And, and we all talked over the last few weeks about this, that all he needed to do, that defense attorney, who, by the way, misled the jury uh, and was reprimanded by the judge, or at least corrected by the judge for misleading the jury in terms of uh, what was required in terms of cause of death. Yeah. Um, but all that the defense attorney needed to do was convince one person because you need unanimity yeah. on the jury. My yeah. point is... They, they, there is no hung jury. It's unanimous within 10 hours, mm-hmm. you know? So that strategy, if that in fact was the strategy, all I need to do is convince one person with this. Yeah. And, and yeah, defense attorneys gaslight. That's what they yeah. do. That's their job. It, this trial is not new in that sense. In prosecution, in, in different cases, they gaslight too. Uh, well, but just, but my, my point is that didn't work. It was unanimity. Yeah. And like, I think we, we all suspect what the verdict is going to be. We don't know, but we suspect what it's going to be because it's either an easy decision that Chauvin is not guilty or an easy decision that Chauvin is guilty, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's where the math comes down, reading the tea leaves. And it's a diverse jury. Yeah. As we look at those live pictures right now, 3.16 p.m. Central Time in Minneapolis. But here, here's the thing. Jake, yes. I think you're right. And. But what I'm speaking to is we don't know, and you're right, what it, it, what it indicates in this short of period of time, it would tend to go one way or the other. But I, just look, this latter part of my career, the last, the last couple of years, I, I, I don't want to be in the prediction business anymore. Right. And because I don't know. But what I'm saying is, is that jurors are made up of, of the American public. They are people as well. And they can be convinced otherwise. And, um, you know, so, so everything that we may be watching it, and we may be absorbing it and we may be thinking, well, there's no way. I'm just saying that I've said and many people have said before, there's no way. Now, I think you're right in your analysis and you, you will probably be right. But I'm just saying, as as my grandma would say, hold your horses because you just <laughs> you just don't know. No, I hear uh, you right now. And you're not you the o- you're right not now. the only skeptic I've talked to <laughs> in the last hour. Believe me, on yeah. my way up here and talking to producers and like, there are a lot of people uh, who don't know who don't know uh, and feel like these are people who, generally speaking... And people interpret that videotape very differently, Jake. There are people who, when they sure. see the videotape, they say, you know, he was not complying. And they think that what, what, that, uh, what, what he did before those nine minutes and 29 seconds actually matters as well. If any, any legal person would tell you what matters is the nine minutes and 29 right. seconds. That's what matters. But, yeah. again, we shall see. We shall see, indeed. Uh, Don Lemon, uh, uh, I want to bring in Anderson Cooper and his panel. And I'm told, uh, Anderson, uh, that George Floyd's brother, Felonis Floyd, uh, is going to be in the courtroom for mm. the reading of the verdict. Anderson? Uh, Jake, Don, thanks very much. We'll come back to you uh, very quickly. I want to talk to our team here, uh, legal and otherwise, here in New York. Uh, Laura Coates, just your quick thoughts right now as we await this verdict. Thank goodness there's not a hung jury right now, because the idea of there being a hung jury, that they had these questions. We didn't have a single jury question. They didn't have confusion about any of the charges. There was unanimity, obviously. What it actually holds, we're all on bated breath. What does that mean? Well, look, I was taught that the moment a jury verdict comes down is the most serious and solemn moment in our democracy. I was taught that as a prosecutor. And when a verdict comes down, I was taught as a prosecutor, you don't move. You don't celebrate. You don't sulk and you have to be mindful of who's there. We just heard Felonis Floyd will be there. The family members of the deceased are there. The defendant has his rights. He is there. So this is sort of the height of our criminal justice process. And I was taught to have very deep respect for that moment. Van Jones? Um, outside of that courtroom, the biggest mass movement for human rights in the history of our species uh, is waiting. Uh, this is the, the, the biggest millions and millions of people, not just in the United States, around the world marched. People tried to move heaven and earth to get justice here. We'll see if it worked. Chief Ramsey? Well, I guess like everyone else, I'm, you know, on the edge of my seat waiting for a a, a verdict. But regardless of where this comes out, guilty, acquittal, this is a moment we can't waste. There has to be reform. And we can't take a deep breath and say, oh, it's over. This is just one case. That's all it is when it comes down to it. It's tragic, but it's one case. There's a lot that still needs to be done. 
And I hope we don't lose sight of that. You just think, Van, just you think back in history of all the people who have been killed, of all the people who have been fired from jobs, of all the injustices perpetrated against minority communities in this country where there were no cameras and where there was no national audience watching and waiting uh, and how history turns and the story, the injustices can remain the same. We'll see what the outcome is, is this time. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Emmett Till's family is watching alongside George Floyd's. In other words, you have 60 plus years of this type of, of brutality. Um, Emmett Till didn't get justice. Uh, Rodney King didn't get justice. We can give the whole list of people who didn't get justice. Uh, today, if this can happen in America and the whole world see it and there is no justice, it is a very, very devastating comment on how far we still have to go in this country. Let's talk about, oh, sorry, Laura. I was going to say, I'm glad you brought up what happened to Emmett Till, because I think it's such a precursor in the sense that that mother wanted the world to see yes. what they did to her boy. They wanted the world to see because there weren't the cameras. There wasn't the video of that horror, that torture, that atrocity. And now you've got all this time later, a man who called out for his mother and the world was able to see what happened to her boy. And, and for, now the And for those who don't know the story of Emmett Till, his mother wanted them to see, literally see his body in the casket. They wanted she wanted everyone to see with an open casket the way in which they had diabolically tortured a 14 year old child. And the way in which the, that particular time in American history treated a young black child and the atrocity of it, the anvil in his case was more than figurative. It was the idea of now the anvil and the weight of American history on black America. But the idea here that the world has seen, remember how the prosecution ended the case. You can believe your eyes. You can believe your eyes. This will tell us if America's eyes are open mm. and if they actually do believe what happened to that mother's child. The defense in their closing responded essentially with don't be misled by freeze frame stills on on video. Let's talk about the actual charges that the jury had to decide on. Second degree unintentional murder, third degree murder, second degree manslaughter. Can you explain? You know, this is a the three different charges for many people look at this. And I know, Ellie, you have you have a lot of comments on this as well. The hardest part to reconcile in Minnesota law is that these are unintentional acts, not intent to kill. But you still have to intend to perform the act that caused the death. So this is essentially the third degree murder is you intended to commit the underlying felony, that being the knee to the neck. That's the felony assault. Then you go down to the idea of second degree murder. That's the one talking about that you acted with a depraved heart in total disregard for the sanctity of human life by an action that you intended to commit, even if not intending to kill him. Then you have the idea of manslaughter, culpable negligence, meaning more than just ordinary negligence, that you had a slip of mind. No, it's that you intended the behavior and you were reckless, essentially, in your behavior, and it was grossly negligent. But the intent component is difficult to reconcile for a lot of people. So, Ellie, I mean, jurors have had to decide essentially a number of things, but what was in Derek Chauvin's mind? What was the policies of the Minnesota Police Department um, and what was the, the, the likely cause of death? Yeah, Anderson, first of all, it's important that people understand each one of these charges stands alone. The jury's not going to just pick one and say, we find on that one. We are going to hear count one, guilty or not guilty. Count two, guilty or not guilty. And they can find guilty on all? They can find guilty on all. They can find guilty on any two, any one, or none. They have those options. Now, as to what was in Derek Chauvin's mind, there are two issues that overlay all three of the counts that Laura just outlined. One, was Derek Chauvin's use of force excessive? Did it violate police training, police procedure, police protocol? I think, in my opinion, the evidence was very powerful on that. We heard from Chief Arredondo. We heard from the senior lieutenant on the police force. We heard from the training officer and the defense side. All we heard from was this one expert, Barry Broad, who tells us it's perfectly fine if someone's prone to use whatever you whatever you want to restrain them. Chief, and Chief Ramsey, just from a law enforcement standpoint, you agree with that? I do agree. I agree that it was wrong. I agree it's outside of policy. I have I've talked to a lot of police chiefs. There's not a single one, as well as police officers, that believe what he did was okay. And I don't know Mr. Broad at all, but you can always find somebody that's going to, you know, present that sort of opinion. But believe me, this is so far out. It's I just one thing I think is important to remember is the reason that we're here and the reason that, that all this stuff matters is because 
you did have a mass movement. And don't forget, the local prosecutors were fumbling the ball and you had people putting pressure and that pressure resulted in Keith Ellison, the state attorney general, being able to take the case. And then they put on, I thought, an extraordinary case. I've seen a bunch of these cases where you felt the prosecutors were deliberately botching it. They didn't put the time in. They didn't really care. In this case, you saw the prosecutors doing an extraordinary job. I completely agree with Van. The initial complaint that was filed by the local prosecutors in this case was a mess. There were facts in there that were irrelevant. They talked about the size of George Floyd. And I think we all understand where they were going with that. They left out important facts. Flags were raised. The attorney general did the right thing. He stepped in. He took over the case. And I think gave it really a a grade A prosecution. You know, immediately what comes to mind in this case is the reinstatement of one of these charges, that third degree murder charge that was reinstated over the course of this trial. And that harkens back to what happened to another former Minneapolis police officer, Mohamed Noor, who killed Justine Damon, who is an Australian woman living in Minneapolis who reported a sexual assault in the alley and was shot by this officer. Now, he was convicted, if you recall, on that particular charge. And so there was a whole lot of appellate process going on about whether that particular charge should apply to a police officer or anybody, frankly, who had one particular victim in mind per se. And so I suspect that over the course of this particular verdict, if third degree murder is in fact um, one of the convictions, if any, then it is not going to end there. There'll still be an appellate battle because the Supreme Court of Minnesota did not finally weigh in on that issue. It it is complex what they have to decide. And I mean, I had to read it several times. Mm -hmm. And I just want to quickly, for our viewers, second degree unintentional murder charge alleges Chauvin caused Floyd's death Without intent, while committing or attempting to commit felony third-degree assault, in turn, third-degree assault is defined as the intentional infliction of substantial bodily harm. Mm -hmm. Correct? Yes. Yes. This is from a CNN right. The third-degree murder charge alleges Chauvin caused Floyd's death by, quote, perpetrating an act eminently dangerous to others and evincing a depraved mind without regard for human life. And the second-degree manslaughter charge alleges Chauvin caused Floyd's death by, quote, culpable negligence, whereby the person creates an unreasonable risk and consciously takes chances of causing death or great bodily harm. For every word you just used, that's an element the jury has to find the prosecution proved beyond a reasonable doubt. Depraved mind, consciously, the idea of a substantial causal factor of death, all the things, the way that you went through the list of figuring out, it wasn't just, we talked about this, Ellie, it wasn't just three charges the jury had to go back and deliberate on. It was each of those charges had three to four elements inside of it. So you're talking about about 12 things they had to decide. And all of this done within 11 hours? Yeah. And let me try to really just boil it down. Count one, the top count, assault, okay? You don't have to prove as a prosecutor that there was an intent to kill. You have to prove that it was an intentional assault. Count two, reckless, reckless, meaning the actions of Derek Chauvin, again, you don't have to prove Derek Chauvin said, I'm going to kill this person, but that he created a reckless danger to George Floyd. And that, that charge is the, which one? Third degree second, murder, yes, the third degree second murder. most serious right. charge. And then- The least serious charge, the third charge, the manslaughter, is negligent. Meaning, again, Derek Chauvin didn't necessarily want to kill or intend to kill George Floyd, but he created an unreasonable risk. And in terms of possible jail time, there's both prescribed jail time for each count. I think two of the counts have the same prescribed jail time. But but prosecutors have also said there's aggravating circumstances which would allow more jail time, correct? That's correct. And so you have the opportunity for a jury to decide about those aggravating factors. The prosecution puts forth that it was because he was in a vulnerable position, particularly the power dynamic of an officer performing this act against a civilian in the presence of a child. All of these things can be aggravating factors. And the defendant can opt to have the jury decide these issues. Chauvin did not decide to have that. He decided to have the judge essentially assess that. So if there is a conviction, the judge will then weigh the allegations of aggravating factors and decide whether the sentence should reflect that. There's always a guideline, a grid that says, here is a possible sentencing range according to your criminal history. He's a former cop. Very quickly, Ellie. Yeah, sentencing will not happen today. No. There's two numbers to watch. The max sentences for each of these counts, 40 for the top, 40 years, 25 for the middle, and then 10 for the bottom charge. But within those range, under those ranges, is the guidelines the sentencing guidelines recommended ranges that Laura's talking about. Let's check back on it. Jake? Anderson, thanks so much. If you're just joining us, the jury in the Derek Chauvin trial in Minnesota has reached a verdict. That verdict will be read at some point in the next 30 minutes, according to the court. The jury reached its verdict shortly after 3 p.m. Eastern time, we're told. 
After around 10 hours of deliberations, which experts and observers say is not really all that many hours of deliberation, Chauvin is facing second-degree unintentional murder, third-degree murder, and second-degree manslaughter charges. Let's go now to CNN's Miguel Marquez. He is in Minneapolis, uh, a city that's been on edge now and waiting for this verdict any minute now. I can't imagine what it's like. Miguel? Yeah, it feels like there is a lot of energy coursing through this city right now. And there, I, you know, we're in front of the courthouse right now. I want to show you just sort of what the scene is right here. Right in front of us, this is uh, Courtney Ross, who is speaking, uh, and some of her friends who are, Courtney Ross is the girlfriend of George Floyd, who testified in this case. I just asked her a few minutes ago what she expects, given that this has come back so quickly. And she says they expect that it is guilty on all three counts. Uh, they also say that if it's not, if there's a mixed verdict or it's innocent on all three counts, the only thing they would say is, I pray for Minnesota. I want to show you just in the last few minutes, this has all developed here, where you can see a lot of press, but also lots and lots of people who have come from all over uh, Minneapolis. Uh, it, is a, it is not a sense of celebration, but it is a sense of relief down here. I want to talk to Jesse real quick. Jesse, we are we were speaking to you earlier. We are live on CNN. Where, you heard about the verdict come in. Where did you come from? I came from work, actually. Were you I, downtown? Where's yes, work? Yes, sir. I just got off work, and I came downtown, and I ran into uh, you and a couple people, and they said that the verdict was in. And what is your expectation that it's come back in 10 hours? I, my expectation is guilty. Uh, on all three counts. On all three accounts. That's what I'm hoping for. And if and if it is, what message does that send to the black community here, across the country, around the world? I think it sends a positive message. I think it's a step towards the right way. You know, as far more as us finally seeing justice for such a horrific incident. You know, and I just really believe it's going to come back guilty. And how concerned are you that? It could be a split decision or not guilty on all three counts. I'm not, I'm not concerned about a split guilty at all because, I mean, a split decision because, and this is the reason why, because so much of society right now is hanging on to it being guilty, and if it's not, it's going to be chaos. All right. Thank you very much. Very we'll be, uh, we'll be watching along with you. I'm trying to read this poem called George Floyd is my Emmett Till, as I told you. Uh, George Floyd and Emmett Till, th that connection, he has a poem that he wants to read here tonight. Uh, I also want to bring over, uh, do we have her? Come over here, guys. I want to bring over, this is, this is Courtney Ross. Courtney? Hold on, I'm going to put the mic up while she's speaking. This, this is George Floyd's girlfriend. My soulmate. He is someone I will be with um, during life and, and, and after death. Ms. Ross? Uh, I love him. Uh, he is a man with a big heart, like everyone is saying in the courtroom. Okay, baby. Ms. Ross? And, um, Sorry, it's hard when someone is. I'm not used to it. Ms. Ross, um, that's important. I would just let you know. Courtney? Floyd was nothing but fun. She's grieving. Yeah, she's grieving right now. Um, just... He was funny and silly and prayerful and a man of God. And he was out of this world and uh, I like to tell people a lot like Floyd was a, a big man and he was he was too big for this earth and and I see it now I see that he's over all of us right now and <laughs> we got your back we got your back Ms. Ross, will, will a guilty verdict on all three counts bring any solace to you? I can't say. I just can't say. Courtney, what would George think about all of this? Um, what he created? I, I, I've always called him Ploy. <laughs> so George is always kind of like, who is that? <laughs> um, <laughs> Like, where George? <laughs> I don't know who that man is. I didn't date him. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Um, what I know Floyd would want out of all of this is that um, people would be coming together. Uh, all people would be coming together. 
This isn't a time to separate. This isn't a time for us to um, blame or hurt each other. It's a time for us to come together. I know this verdict is coming back guilty. And, and when it does, I hope that his heart will really come through in everybody and know that he is um, such a loving man and would want us all to just, like Tashira said earlier, you know, put our arms around each other and just love us love each other today. And what will guilty verdicts mean to Minneapolis? What will it mean to Minnesota? I think it'll mean change. It'll mean change. Uh, it's a first step in a long road to recovery. We have a lot of work to do in Minneapolis, but I believe Floyd came here for a reason. This is a sacred, sacred land, and we need to start respecting that again. And I know that that is what he would want. Floyd was attached to this city. He was attached to the lakes, particularly like Bode Makaska. And I know that it happened here for a reason. Maybe we are the epicenter for change. Maybe we're making the world look at things in a different way. I'm not sure, but I know it definitely started that momentum. And why so important to be standing in this physical space right now? Um, I think so many of us have um, a lot of negative experiences with the government. Um, this is not a comfortable place for many of us to be or to look at, um, though it represents our city. And uh, I love Hennepin County, and I always stand for 612 Minneapolis. <laughs> that's, right. that's, 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 that's right. my city. And, but at the same time, I've had many bad encounters here. And so I think it's time that we show what this building is supposed to be about, and it's supposed to be about justice. So it needs to come back with that guilty verdict so we can start to believe again in what this is about. Thank you very much. Thank you, Thank you very much. Very good luck to you. Uh, Jake, just a little sense of, I want to show you one other thing that's happening down here on, all the way on this side. They've actually set up a barbecue, and there is that sense, not quite of celebration, but certainly of relief, a great expectation that this is going to be guilty on all counts. If it's not, that may be even a bigger problem. Jake? Yeah, you just heard there from uh, Courtney Abacha Ross, uh, the girlfriend of the late George Floyd, expressing confidence that it will be a guilty verdict and, and that hopefully this will bring about some unity in the United States. Uh, Miguel Marquez, thank you so much. I want to go now uh, straight to CNN, Sarah Seidner. She's live outside the, the government building, the courthouse in Minnesota. Uh, and Sarah, you've been talking to the Floyd family. Uh, what, what are they telling you? Uh, so I just heard from uh, Felonis Floyd, uh, George Floyd's brother, and, and reminding folks that he was also the person that the day after he uh, laid his brother to West, he went to Congress and spoke in front of them for the George Floyd uh, Policing Act. Um, and so he is hoping for reform. But right now he is uh, up in the court room. He is. He told me that he was pacing, um, getting ready to go into the court to hear this verdict. He is now uh, in the court, and he said to me, you know, after all of this, for him, he has had a really hard time sleeping. And he said, I haven't been able to sleep throughout much of this. And he said, maybe hearing this verdict will finally help me get some sleep. And in his mind, he wants the verdict to be a certain way. And he said, if it goes that way, then he might finally be able to get some real rest because he hasn't since the day that his brother, George Floyd, was murdered on May 25th, 2020. He also said that this, he realizes, is historic for the world, for America, and that he was heartened to see that so many people cared about what happened to his brother. And he commented about so many people across America from uh, different creeds and colors who came out in his name and to see all the people. And he kept mentioning, I see all the people. I appreciate their support, whether it be in the streets or in the halls of Congress. I see all of the people who uh, have stood up for justice and stood up uh, for his brother and against what happened to his brother. So right now he is inside of the court waiting on the verdict, just like all of us. Jake? Although we, it does sound, though, uh, Sarah, like Felonis Floyd, George Floyd's brother, like George Floyd's girlfriend, uh, Courtney Bacha Ross, is optimistic that it will be a guilty verdict yes. based on what you're saying. 
Absolutely. And you know, the reason for that one is he has said this over and over to me long before the jury said they had a decision. He has said that he has faith uh, and he believes that no one could have watched that video, the video alone, and not come back with a guilty verdict. Uh, he also realized um, after we talked and, and I told him that the, a verdict had been reached, he said, there were no questions, and he noticed um, there were no questions um, by the jurors in this case. And to, the, to him, uh, that was uh, a, a, a sign um, that they had looked at the, all of the evidence uh, in the trial and that they didn't need to re-watch it again and re-look at it all again uh, because they hadn't made a decision. And he believes that decision will be guilty, but again, we have to be very careful. It is the 12 people, the 12 jurors that were chosen that makes that decision, and we're going to hear that decision very shortly. All right, Sarah Seidner, thanks so much. Uh, we'll come back to you in a moment. Let's go now to a different part of uh, Minneapolis. Adrian Broadus uh, is in a different part, I think downtown uh, near a police precinct. Tell us what's happening where you are. Hey there, Jake. We're about a half mile from the Hennepin County Government Center. If you look behind me, you'll notice a crew with the city is installing more concrete barriers just in front of the roadway that leads to the police department. On the other side of that truck, there's a gate. That gate wasn't there earlier today. It was delivered and installed moments before we learned jurors had reached a verdict. On the other side of the police department, the businesses here, Lola Red, have put up more boards to protect their building. When this verdict, the news came that the verdict was reached, we were inside of a church at 38th in Chicago. If you sit down inside of the sanctuary, that church, and look out the window, you can see George Floyd Square. You see where Floyd took the final moments of his life. We shared with the pastor that we were speaking with for another story. The jury has reached a verdict. He and his wife said their heart dropped, but they found a bit of comfort knowing the jury reached the verdict so quickly. And one thing they also pointed out, so many have asked them, what do you think the outcome will be? He said they're not necessarily worried about the outcome. The bigger question at this hour is what is most important? And they talked about humanity. He talked about the people he served for nearly 40 years on that corner. Like Floyd, he moved to Minneapolis from Texas. And like other people in that community, he had issues with members of law enforcement at a young age. He said he had a, an encounter with police that left him with a brain, a traumatic brain injury. And he wants to use that experience once we hear the verdict to move forward to help people heal. He said, you know, yesterday when we heard the closing arguments, the defense said Floyd had an enlarged heart. The prosecution said Chauvin's heart wasn't big enough. He said heart is at the center of this, and he leads with love. Downtown, around all of the barriers and barricades, there's a big billboard. It's black, and in white letters, there's the word love, and that's what he wants to lead with, love. Jake? Adrian Broadus, thanks so much. Uh, I want to go back to CNN's uh, Don Lemon. Uh, and Don, one of the most remarkable things about this trial and about the George Floyd case and I don't know if my, um, my team has those murals, the pictures of those murals yeah. uh, ready, but there have been pictures, paintings, murals of George Floyd around the world, uh, mm -hmm. in Pakistan, in England, all over, as a symbol of injustice at the hands of the government. This, ha this case has taken on a, a truly international meaning, um, representing the idea of people who do not deserve it being put down, being killed, being oppressed by their governments, uh, often uh, because of racism, but also just in general, uh, government versus people. Yeah, and it all started in Minneapolis in what is now George Floyd Square. There was no George Floyd Square there, obviously, before this happened. Um, but it has also transformed in many ways to a Black Lives Matter way, which is in, in D.C., where you live, uh, Jake. But I think the reason it's become such a symbol is obviously because, number one, I really do think that it's because of the attention that this particular case got because we were in quarantine and because people didn't know where their lives were going, what was going to happen next, uh, because we didn't know if our loved ones were going to be sick and we were, or if we were going to be sick or, or what was going to happen from moment to moment, if we were going to have a job or so on. We have to remember where we were uh, a year ago. And not very far 
you know, along and then a year from now, a couple months, May 25th, we're basically sort of in the same place. So we were all sitting at home in quarantine. And I think the whole world was watching because America looks, I mean, because the world looks to America as a symbol of democracy. And if, if there's any place on earth that can guarantee freedom and that can guarantee what the Constitution says, that we are in search of a more perfect union, there's no other place on earth than the United States. And to see this atrocity happen on a city street in the middle of the day in the United States was just something that people could not wrap their heads around it worldwide. People in America couldn't as well. For people of color particularly, it was a confirmation. Yeah. Of all those things that people say, well, you know, maybe it's an exaggeration and what have you, but it was confirmation. I think for the for many people around the world, it was just sheer. They were just stunned and they couldn't believe something like that was happening in the United States and not in some war zone or some third world country. So just just to take a step back, the Black Lives Matter movement, as I recall, first hearing about it was in 2015 Mm -hmm. after the death of Michael Brown uh, in uh, Ferguson, Missouri. And if we go back, not even, uh, not even six full years, uh, and I don't mean to pick on uh, Hillary Clinton, but Hillary Clinton, who certainly is somebody uh, who is allied with civil rights, first asked about this, did not know what Black Lives Matter meant, you know, set, made the same mistake that a lot of politicians did at that time, saying, oh, well, all lives matter. Um, now we're at a point, almost six years later, after all of this, these different cases, and maybe crescendoing with uh, the death of George Floyd, that because of the pandemic, as you note, but also because of, of how horrifying this video was, this nine minutes and tw- 29 seconds of a police officer with his knee on the neck of George Floyd, while the crowd, while children begged the policeman to get off his neck, and he didn't, to the point that you have Mitt Romney, marching with the Black Lives Matter movement in Washington, D.C. in 2020. It is a sea change in the culture, a sea change. Do you, do, do you agree? Well, I think it's a sea change um, in awareness, not necessarily in practice. And so we will see what happens with this verdict. But it was not just Black Lives Matter, right? And Because many people didn't see, and it, it's so easy to see if you just added the were two, T-O-O at the end, or also, Black Lives Matter also, or Black Lives Matter too. And then I think it helps people understand what you mean by that. Not that all lives, you know, don't matter, right. but Black Lives Matter because that's what we're talking about right. at this point. It's obvious that, that other lives, that it's obvious that white lives matter. But it wasn't just Black Lives Matter. Remember, it was Colin Kaepernick who took a knee for injustice, police injustice, and for reform in this country. And then you had... Derek Chauvin with his knee on George Floyd's neck. At first, what we thought for eight minutes and 46 seconds. And now at, when the trial started, we learned that it was nine minutes and 29 seconds. Right. And so there, there have been a number of things that have led us to this. Remember, there was that. There was very fine people on both sides. And people said, OK, this is this is nuts. Then there was Ahmaud Arbery. And we, have, we can't forget how horrific that video is. Horrific what happened to Ahmaud Arbery. But how, how horrific the video is of Ahmaud Arbery jogging down a street and then being shot with a shotgun. And we see it. Yeah. And then we hear what happens to Breonna Taylor in her bedroom and then the death of George Floyd. So there have been a number of things that have led to this. But, yes, a, a, a sea change in awareness. We'll see if it's in practice when this verdict is read. Don, we'll come back to you in a sec. CNN's Omar Jimenez is at George Floyd Square in Minneapolis at the site of this alleged crime. Uh, Omar, what's it like there? Jake, well, a crowd has started to grow here, of course, in anticipation of a verdict, as you hear people start to chant as well. But when you make your way over to the spot where George Floyd took some of his final breaths, you see 
that, of course, the memorial aspect of this is still here. But then when you pan up and look over to the left, you see how many people have started to form. Some of them, of course, press here in this moment. But people are anxious. They want the results in this trial. They want the verdict. One woman we spoke to who actually seems to be leading some of the chants right now said that it doesn't matter to her what the verdict is. She feels that the momentum that has been that has grown from the movement over the course of a little under a year now is enough to propel people forward for generations to come. And when you look over here, these are people they're leading the chance. We're not aware that there's any television or something set up for them to watch to see actually when the verdict drops. But you see the passion is still here. They are leading. They are, want to prosecute the police. And one person we spoke to actually earlier today said that's what they do here in Minneapolis. There was never a question. They wanted people, they wanted the police, I should say, to be treated how any other person would be treated if they had done the actions that Derek Chauvin had done. And so that's what people are feeling here. And when you think about this moment that we're in, this moment that has been coming for almost a year now, that has been building up, this is why it's important. This reminds you of the somberness and the reality of the situation that a human life was lost at the hands of police, that a family still has a gaping hole. The only question is, is with this verdict, does this now become a spark point for even further to come uh, out of here in Minneapolis, Jake? All right, Omar Jimenez, and it's all in the hands of the jury right now. We're expecting them uh, to come uh, and to the courtroom, to the government center and announce their unanimous decision after only 10 hours. Uh, we're all riveted, waiting to hear what they have to say. We understand that President Biden at the White House is at, the, at his TV, watching, waiting to find out what the verdict will be. Let's bring in Anderson Cooper and his panel. Anderson. Uh, Jake, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Um, when the jury does come, and we, we're not sure if they've been, do you, you believe that they've been sequestered at the hotel and that's where they came up with the verdict? We believe so. That's where they have been sequestered for the evenings at a hotel. They could come or talk to their families and communicate. But they were deliberating very late last night. And the assumption is that they are being transported to the courthouse during some part of this. Remember, it was able to you were able to hand over notes through Zoom because they didn't want to, have to bring the defendant, the counsel, everyone in. The jury never goes in the room to actually hand over the question to the judge. It's always sort of done in this distance way to give them their. So what's sanctity. going to happen once they? are brought back, but whether they're now or not, when they actually are back in the courtroom, what happens? They're going to sit in the jury box the way they have been through the entire trial. They will hand, the foreman will hand the jury verdict to the judge, who will then review it quickly, ask if they've all been able to lead to a unanimous verdict, which happens, has to happen, excuse me, in Minnesota. It must be unanimous. At this stage, does the judge already know what the verdict is? Yeah, usually the judge gets, gets a look in advance. He knows what's coming. He will ask the foreperson of the jury. Count one. How do you find guilty or not guilty? The four person will read the verdict. We'll do that times three. And then the next big thing that happens, if there is a conviction, the prosecution often seeks to remand the defendant, to send him into jail. Derek Chauvin has been out on bail pending trial. The, what changes if there's a conviction is that presumption of innocence is now gone. So it's common. It's up to the prosecutor if you want to ask this. And the judge doesn't always agree. But I've had cases like this where someone's out on bail, get convicted. You say, judge, we now move to remand the defendant. And often, not always, often the judge says, I grant that motion and he's off to prison. So there's an op there, he might be able to go home or he might actually directly go to prison. Well, sometimes it's called yeah. step back oftentimes, right? And they could be able to do it because this is a murder conviction. It's not one that's a nonviolent crime. Sometimes judges will give the luxury of being able to settle one's <clears throat> affairs before being brought in. But of course, Derek Chauvin, if he is convicted of murder charges, one or more, or of any of them, then there is a presumption that he is no longer able to have the benefit of freedom. But again, this is not a sentencing opportunity yet. This will be the conviction or acquittal moment. The judge will still have to determine, often through a report, there will be discussions about remorse, et cetera. He'll fill out some paperwork. He'll talk to the equivalent of a probation officer about his views on the crime and what he has done to sort of guide the opportunity in the judge's hand to say, what am I dealing with? What type of criminal or felon am I dealing with now? Am I talking about somebody who's likely to be a recidivist, meaning they'll return to a life of crime, somebody who needs treatment in other ways? All this holistic sentencing will take place before the actual time the judge says, here is the number of anything. We in America have changed over the course of time to say it's not just a pipeline to prison post-conviction. It's about how we can rehabilitate offenders as well. Van Jones, uh, obviously people are, are listening very closely to 
or is it going to be conviction on all counts will be. How much does that matter in terms of the public's response? I think it matters a lot. Um, I think, you know, obviously, if there's, a, if there's an acquittal, it's completely devastating. Um, but if it's just the lower one, he's negligent. That didn't feel negligent. That didn't look like ne- negligence. And so I do think that it matters. Uh, you know, if it's all three, I think you're going to feel a level of vindication for this movement and for this community. And don't forget, uh, this is not the only case in that area. I've talked to people on the ground there. There, there, what you have to understand about this, what, where this is happening, it's the most livable place, and it also has the biggest disparities. In other words, it's a great place to be white, and it's a terrible place to be black. That's what everybody tells me. And they say the, the, the level of friction between you know, the, 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 the Hmong community there, the Somali community there, the black community there, and the police is unreal. They say they feel like they're in a war zone all the time. Then you bring in all these troops. You have a grieving community that's already traumatized, and now you have police and troops everywhere. So they are literally just on pins and needles. If you have a, 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 a complete vindication of what all these grassroots groups have been saying, then there's relief. But if you come back with just one charge, and then if the sentencing guidelines give you, you know, a couple of years, it's going to be putting salt in a very big wound. Chief Ramsey, just, you know, we have several hours now or time where we are awaiting this verdict. Law enforcement also has time to try to figure out. Obviously, right. they have been going over contingency plans for quite some time. Well, they have been going over plans. I mean, you have to be prepared whether there's an acquittal or whether there's a conviction, because you're going to have in many cities people take to the streets, either in celebration or because they're upset because of the verdict. But you have to be ready no matter what. Unfortunately, they have some experience because in May, with the killing of George Floyd, there was a lot of unrest. And so many of the areas where you know you had unrest, you're going to already have your platoons out there to be able to protect strip malls and different places like that where you're likely to have some issues. And you want to be able to have people just celebrate and, and you know, express their First Amendment rights at the same time. So you got to have that balance there. And I think right now that's what's been uh, taking place. There's been a lot of preparation. There's been a lot of of uh, conference calls between major city chiefs, conference of mayors, um, um, IECP and PERF, uh, talking about the things that went bad in May. So we don't repeat the same mistakes mm. in May. And, but, and that's important. But, but, but you, know, you also do have, on the other side of it, you, uh, you've got to try to have some public order and some safety. But you also had 50 grassroots organizations begging saying you have now too much police presence on us. You've got these humvees, you have all this stuff, and the young people feel that they are being pushed up against the wall. They need the space to grieve, they need the space to celebrate, and they need the space to be able to do it the right way. And so sometimes, you know, you're in a tough situation if you're in local government there, because if you don't have enough presence, you're going to get in trouble, but you can also overdo it. And so what my, my hope is, is that you have, let me just give some praise to some of these groups, uh, Black Visions Collective, Reclaim the Block, Minnesota Youth Collective, Take Action Minnesota, ACER, Movement Voter Project. Those young people been out there when the cameras were there and when they weren't, keeping this movement going. They need space to protest tonight safely or to celebrate tonight safely. I hope they get it. What's concerning, though, is we have a Pavlovian response in America that when we have p- impending verdicts and you see buildings start to be boarded up and businesses start to close, that trust gap that's already there between our justice system and members of the community, it expands exponentially. Because in their minds, they say, you're preparing me for an acquittal. You are telling me if it's boarded up, you anticipate my unrest, my wrath. You anticipate the devolution of a protest into looting and other things. And so part of what you're seeing in terms of the unease you're speaking about, Van, is that Pavlovian reflex and response to say, what does this mean if you are calling out the National Guard? People believe, did you get a heads up, Governor? Did you get a heads up, Mr. President? Did you give a heads up, Judge? Do you know something that we do not know? And finally, on the point that you raised, Don, I mean, excuse me, Van, about the difference between how people will compare and what negligence looks like, Minnesota has a very specific and recent memory of what second-degree charges look like, second-degree manslaughter, because Euronimo Jenez, who killed Philando Castile, charged and acquitted with the second-degree manslaughter charge. Does that feel the same way for George Floyd to people? Yeah, the officer now resigned Kim Potter, who killed Dante Wright. 
Same charge. Does that feel the same way of that nine minutes and 29 seconds? And so you've got a population of people, human beings, who are saying, well, if I'm going to compare, this doesn't feel like those cases. And if that's all he gets, this is going to be something that might contribute to that trust gap widening. Let's go back. Real quick, if I can just respond to something Van said. One of the things that was discussed is not having a heavy handed approach immediately. If you need to have people in riot gear and so forth, have them out of sight, Mm. stage them someplace out of sight. They can respond quickly. but You start off as low a level as you can. Let's go back to Jake. Thank you, Anderson. We are standing by for the verdict in the Derek Chauvin trial to be announced any minute. I'm going to hand it over to CNN's Wolf Blitzer right now. Wolf. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.